uh, Romans, the eighth chapter. Last time we got down, I guess we were in verse 11, 12, right in there. Um, But we kind of zoomed in again on the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of God in them that are saved. And that is the benchmark of salvation. It's not, there's not a list of works that you can go through somebody's life and check off and say, yep, they've done this, they've done that, they've done this, they've been this for this many years, they must be saved. That don't work. The Word of God don't give us a list of works that prove salvation. But what proves salvation is the indwelling of the power of the Spirit of God. That's the only way to be accepted with God is to be redeemed through Jesus Christ and them that are redeemed, the Spirit of God lives within them. So he says in verse 9, Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So what's happened? What's happened is this man, this person that Paul is writing about, I believe you could even say Paul himself, he's come to the gospel. God has saved him. The Holy Spirit has moved in and regenerated him, made him to be a new creature. Remembering that we talked about that man that's born on the inside, that son of God, that's a man that wasn't there before. Paul was Paul in the flesh. He lived after the flesh. He talked after the flesh. He thought with a carnal mind and he lived as he desired. And God came by. God spoke to him as we've already heard. God drew him. God saved him. And God made a new man out of him. And what Paul had to do was cast off all of the works of the flesh. That scripture in Philippians, I know we're all probably very familiar with that, where Paul says, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day. All of these good works, and he had a list of good works, and at the very end of it, he was blameless of the law. Nobody could accuse Paul of sin, of wrongdoing, of breaking the commandment of God. Paul had a great list of fleshly works, but Paul was no longer trusting in any of those things to be accepted with God. Paul, What Paul thought of those was, I count them as dung that I might win Christ. I've counted them as worthless. They're of no value that I might have Christ and Christ be the means that I can be accepted with God. Paul was not accepted before. But in Christ Jesus... Paul could be accepted. And there, the body is dead because of sin. Paul says, I have to lay these works off because I've sinned. I've transgressed the commandment of God, and because of that sin, I can't be accepted. So the thought of man is, well, I'm trying real hard to do good. Is trying hard, is God going to accept me trying hard? Well, remember we looked at Cain. Cain had put in great labor to grow the uh, fruit of the ground that he brought to offer to the Lord, whatever that that was. A lot of sweat, a lot of labor, a lot of work, a lot of trying to produce that. And God did not accept what Cain offered. And God's not going to accept me trying hard. God's not going to accept my best. God's only accepting perfection. So where does that leave us? That leaves us as dead. It leaves us at a place where we've got nothing we can do. That's where Paul was. And Paul says, if Christ is in you, the body is dead. There is no fleshly works that we're going to do that's going to please God. There's not a work that I'm able to do to be accepted with God. I'm setting that man off as dead because he has sinned. Because he's transgressed the law of God, I can no longer be acceptable to God in my flesh any longer. So what's he looking to? The Spirit is life because of righteousness. 
not Paul's righteousness, but Christ's imputed righteousness upon his life, the Spirit of God that dwells within him is now his life and his means to be accepted with God. So fleshly works, what people get hung up on so often, and we've even heard that opening the door for people is a good work. Well, it might be a good work. That might be good manners. Mom and dad might teach you to have good manners. But is that a work of God? Is that evidence of salvation? See, we get hung up on things that lost people do. And if lost people do it, that's not a work of the Spirit. How can lost people be performing works of the Spirit? It's not possible. So our minds are going to have to be changed about what a real work of the Spirit of God is. It's that that is stirred up, impressed, and that the Holy Spirit, as we'll see in a few verses, bears witness to and with. Now if your spirit, the Spirit of God within you, cannot link up, with a Spirit of God in whoever else that it is, there's no evidence of salvation there. Whatever is said, whatever's done, whatever action is performed, whatever good work is there, outside of the witness of the Holy Spirit of God, you cannot lay hands on that and say, I know that so-and-so is saved. Boy, you hear a lot of that. People get sick. People are going to die. Well, I know they're saved. Well, that's, that's wonderful. I hope you know and that we know they're saved because the Spirit has bore witness with what they say unto our heart. We've linked up with that and we know by that. Well, they've been good. They've been moral. And they've went to church. They've been baptized. Remember, none of those things. Lost people do all of those things. There are lost people that have a check mark by every one of those works. The means of knowing and the means of assurance of salvation is through the witness of the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God alone. Because the body's dead. The works of the body are of no value towards God any longer. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you. So what's the if? If the Spirit dwells in you. That's where the question mark is. It's not, listen, let's read the rest of the verse. He that raised up Jesus Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. So the question mark, the if is on whether God dwells in me or not. It is not on whether I'm going to be quickened by the Spirit of God or not. That's certain. That's sure. The question is whether God dwells in me or not. Now remember, if you have not the Spirit of Christ, you're none of His. So outside of the Spirit, you don't belong to God. But if... The Spirit dwells in you. You can rest assured at this. He will quicken your mortal bodies. And we talked, I believe, last time that you that's applied often to the end of time. And there is certainly a final resurrection where all that are in the graves are going to get up. You know who's getting up then? The lost man's getting up then too. A, a resurrection of the just and the unjust a resurrection unto everlasting punishment and shame to some, and a resurrection of everlasting life to others. So there's another work that the lost man's going to have part in. But now this, this quickening of the Spirit, that is God regenerating that man's life. That is that man in the same mortal body that he had before. He's now living a new life by the power of the indwelling Spirit. So you see, the change that we saw in Romans 6 
It's not I'm going to turn over a new leaf. It's not January 1st and I'm going to do better. It's not, well, such and such has happened in my life. This tragedy's occurred and I'm going to start doing better. None of those things are what he's talking about in the change of life that represents salvation. What's happening here is this man's been saved, God's moved in, and his life is changed as a result of God moving in. All of this is a work of the hand of God, not the work of man. God's performing this work. So we looked in Ephesians chapter 2 and Titus 3, the work of God regenerating, washing, cleansing, bringing out of sin, giving a new life and a new hope and a new walk. So verse 12, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. So therefore, brethren, we are debtors and ower, one indebted to another. We have no indebtedness to live after the flesh. Where did living after the flesh get us in the beginning? It brought us to sin. It brought us to guilt before God. It brought us to death, not just death of the flesh, but eternal death and destruction away from the presence of the Lord. It brought us to a place of shame and guilt before God, to a place that we couldn't be accepted any longer. A place that we as Adam and Eve in the garden had fallen and we could not recover ourselves out of. A place of eternal, hopeless ruin. But God, God's brought us out of that. God has appeared. God has quickened us. God has spoken to us. God has drew us to His Son. God has saved us out of that state. He's placed His Spirit within us and He's quickened us. We don't owe anything to the flesh. The flesh is what destroyed us to begin with. Now if somebody come to you and stole from you, you wouldn't be indebted to do good to them. But you know, somebody comes by and helps you. There's one that you'd feel indebted to pay back, to help back in place of their help. Well here, the flesh has brought destruction It's led us away from God, away from His Word, away from His Spirit, away from life and into death. We don't owe anything to the flesh. It's robbed us. But God's delivered us and saved us. Certainly, we're indebted unto Him to live after Him for the mighty works that He's done for us. In Psalm 100, verse number 1, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord is God. It is He that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Enter into His gates with thanksgiving, and into His courts with praise. Be thankful unto Him, and bless His name. So here is the testimony of one that's, that's been delivered, that's been saved. And what's the result? Praise the Lord for the salvation that He's brought to our souls. Give Him glory for the work that He's done. Be thankful unto Him and be a follower of Him because He's delivered you from destruction, indebted to live after Him. So you see, this changes the whole mindset of works. Let's look in another place in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter number 6. This is familiar scripture. Verse 19. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. God has delivered us. He's paid our ransom. Now what was that ransom? It wasn't a hundred grand. 
If somebody paid $100,000 to rescue us from captors, do you reckon we'd be grateful for them being willing to pay such a great price for us to be delivered? Well, the price of this deliverance was first being incarnated, God in the flesh, dwelling among men, leaving the glory of heaven and coming down and not being a king, not being a rich man, but being a man that he said himself, I have no place to lay my head. He had to live perfectly and resist the devil and the temptations of the devil. And then he had to go and bear the cross and endure the suffering, the shame, the pain, the sorrow, the mocking, the trials, and he had to give his life there. That price was paid that we could be saved. Man's delivered from the devil by the price that the Lord Jesus paid. And you that are saved, you're no longer your own. God has bought you and purchased you by the blood of Jesus and now we're His children and we're His servants. And those that are saved by the indwelling of the Spirit of God and that's what he says here in Corinthians. Your body is the temple, the place where the Holy Ghost of God dwells. A separate person from me. God dwelling in man. And by that power that's within, he quickens, he makes new creatures, and the God's truth, them that are saved, are not free to do what they want any longer. I know people have a hard time swallowing that, but I believe people that are saved, they know what I'm talking about. You're really not free to do what you want to do or what you'd like to do any longer. You now belong to God. He's bought you. He's dwelling within you. One more piece, uh, place in 1 Peter chapter number 4, verse number 1. For as much then... As Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that is suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. There was a time we were free to do every one of those sins. We could go to revelings, to parties. We could have excess of wine. We could be lasciviousness, unbridled lusts. We could do all of these sins and there was nothing there to constrain us. We were free to do those things. But now that you're saved, could you do that again? Can you go back to that lifestyle? I know people might say, well, I don't want to. Well, in them that are saved, there's a power of God quickening and they're not their own. They can't go back to that lifestyle by the power of God that dwells within them. Remember, we're kept by the power of God. We're not kept by the determination and the strength of my will in that I'm just not going to do that. I've said, I've said a lot of things, this is a God's truth, that I wasn't going to do, and I've done every one of them. I said one time I was going to lose the weight and I was going to keep it off and I'll never go back to eating like I ate before. You can see how that worked out. But we eat our words. Thank God it's not by my will and by my power that we're kept. But the power of God within has quickened and made new creatures out of them that are saved. And now the church, the redeemed, they're indebted to God to live after Him. So let's look now verse 13, Romans chapter 8. For if you live after the flesh, 
ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. So mortifying, that word means to kill. If we live, now now hold on a minute. Before we go here, let's, let's rest on one thing so that we don't twist what he's saying. As a saved individual, can that person live after the flesh and die and go to hell? You sure? If the individual is saved, can he lose it and die and go to hell? He cannot. So he's not saying here, now here's a bunch of saved people, now you do right or you're going to die. That's not what he's saying. Salvation is sure, secure, and eternal, not in my work, in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not talking about people losing what they've got. We're talking about people that either have it or they don't. That's what we're talking about. So, if you live after the flesh... Ye shall die. Remember to be carnally minded up above. To be inclined to follow the flesh. That's what minded means. That's going to lead us to death. Well here, if we live after the flesh, if Paul, the apostle, continued to live after his flesh and hold to his righteousness and good works, where would Paul have wound up? Paul was religious, moral, trying to serve God the best he knew how, but he would have died lost. By his own words, he needed to be saved in order to be righteous. Had he not been saved and he continued to live after the flesh, he was going to die. And you can swap Paul's name for yours, whether you're religious and good or you are a wicked and a vile sinner. Doesn't matter. If you continue to live after the flesh and there was no intervening of the power of the Word of God in your life, you'd have died in that condition. Eternally lost without hope. If you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if ye through the Spirit... Now this is not, I'm doing better. This is the Spirit of God that is bringing and enabling this to happen. This is salvation in a man's life. If ye through the Spirit do mortify, the old man's got to be laid down. There's no trust in the flesh any longer. There's no trust in what I've done. There's no trust. And you know, you think about it. When God brings conviction on somebody, whether they've been in church their whole life or not, could we not say, what I've done in the past has brought me to a point that here I am dead. None of it's any of any value. None of it's of any good to me. Living after the flesh brings death every time. But through the Spirit, we can have life through the power of God. In Romans chapter 3, where we've already looked, Verse 20, Therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. The law and the flesh cannot be justified by its works or its actions. We can't measure up. We can't do it. So if you live after the flesh, you're going to die. But the spirit that quickens that brings life, that mortifies the deeds of the body, through the Spirit you can live. So again, it's the same thing over and over and over again. We're either indwelled by the Spirit and power of God, God has redeemed us, saved us, and the Holy Ghost dwells in our body, or we're lost and living after the flesh. One way we're going to die after the flesh and after our will, there's no hope for that individual that dies living after the flesh. None. But those that are in the Spirit, though the works may be identical, 
outwardly and in the flesh. Those that are in the Spirit, they're made alive not by what they did, but by the work of Jesus Christ. And they're entrusting their salvation not on anything that they've got, but on the work of the Lord Jesus. They have put all of their trust in Him. But, so the flesh brings forth death, but if we see how worthless... So in Matthew 16, we've got this Scripture. Verse 24, Jesus said unto His disciples, If any man will come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? So Jesus says, if you're coming after me, then you have to deny yourself. That's the laying off of the flesh. That's realizing the dead works and that it is of no value to you. You're going to have to deny you what you are, what you think, how you feel, how you've lived, your good works. All of that's got to be mortified. It's got to be killed. We've got to take up the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and follow after Him. The Lord brought justification. The Lord brought salvation. Salvation is, as Jonah said, salvation is of the Lord. It originated, came from the Lord. None of it originated in you. It wasn't there magically in you. God brought salvation. God gave the faith, was the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Where is boasting? It's excluded. There is no boasting. It's God's work. It's God's work alone. And uh, in Philippians, we already talked about where Paul said, I counted his dung. It's the laying aside of the worthlessness of the flesh that we might have the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, laying aside me that I might have Him. Because with me, there's no way to be accepted, no way to be justified, no way to be redeemed. Verse 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So led. It's not to drive. It's not that God is behind them with a stick, poking them everywhere they go to try to make them to go like you would with cows. But it's like sheep with a shepherd that the sheep calls, they come, and they follow where he goes. One, they're being driven. They're being forced. But here, it's led. They're not being forced. But by the call of that shepherd... The sheep willingly care for that shepherd and come to and follow after where he leads. It's willing. They are willingly following. In John chapter 10, we see that very picture used for the people of God. John 10 verse 3, To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. So you can apply this to sheep. They would have a sheepfold at their cities at night in, the, in this day. They didn't have fenced-in fields. And all of the sheep from the shepherds roundabout, they'd put them all in there for the night and there would be a, a porter at the gate. There was one gate. And he would stay there and keep the sheep safe so the shepherds could rest. And the next morning, 
the shepherds would come. They weren't allowed to go in and carry their sheep out. That would allow a thief to go in and carry them out. But the porter would move when the shepherd would come, and he'd call. And all the sheep that belonged to that shepherd would follow him out the gate and go. And the next shepherd would come. There would be no way now. No way you could go in by hand and figure out whose was whose. They didn't have ear tags. They didn't have scan tags like we have today. There'd be no way you could divide it up yourself. But you know what divided them? The call. When the shepherd would call, his sheep would come. The Lord says, my sheep, they'll come. When I call for them, I'm going to call them individually and I'm going to call them by name. And he says, my sheep will follow. Now I'm going to tell you something. That don't sound like God's calling people's names and whether they want to or not, it's whether they'll get saved. That is not what that sounds like. Let's read that one more time. He calleth his own sheep by name and leadeth them out. He goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow. God's calling his. He's calling them by name. And you know what the voice of the shepherd does in his sheep? There's something in them that responds to that call. Can you see that with the animal? When they hear the voice, Vaughn can go call some for you. When they hear that voice that they recognize, something in them responds to that voice that they hear. Well, God's sheep, Christ's sheep, they respond to the gospel. I don't have to do any magic for that to happen. God will call them by name. God will lead them out. God will take them to pasture. And they will follow Him. Why? Because God dwells within them. They're not driven. They're not dragged. But they follow by that inward desire. That unction, that anointing of the Holy One that abides on them leads them after Christ. So now verse 15. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. So we've not received the spirit of bondage, slavery, to fear. Phobos is the Greek word there. It's the same word we get phobia from. Somebody's afraid of something, they've got a a phobia. A misused word in our land and country today. But here, we've not received the spirit of a slave, Now you think about the spirit of a slave, a servant, one that's owned. You know why they do what they're told. The master comes and says, I expect you to have this done by this evening. You know why they do that? Because they're afraid of what the master can do unto them. They're afraid of the punishment that can come for disobedience to the master. So their works then are motivated, it's not because, well, I just love my master and I want to do what he says. Their works are motivated by, if I don't do this, I might get lashes this evening. If I don't do this, I may not get to eat my meal this evening. It's expedient that I do this because of fear that's within. Well, that's not the spirit that's inside of the children of God. You know what that kind of spirit brings? Resentment. It can bring hatred and despising of the Master. Now that's not what's in the children of God. We've not received a spirit. So in Exodus chapter 20, here's the children of Israel. They've been brought out of Egypt. They've come to Mount Sinai. God's come down in a smoke in what sounds like what we could picture maybe as a volcano eruption, an explosion on the mountain. That's about what God's presence is like there as He's speaking with the people. 
And he says here, And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God has come to prove you that His fear may be before your faces that you sin not. So the people were afraid. And if you remember, they told Moses, Don't let God speak to us like this again. We don't want to see, and it wasn't anger or bitterness. They were scared slapped to death by what they saw. What they saw from God brought great fear on them. And Moses says, God's proving you. He wants you to see who He is and His power and His majesty so that it might motivate you not to sin. You know what that is? That's the spirit of slave. That they look back at the mountain and say, Oh boy, that mountain that was in a smoke, that mountain that was exploding, we had better serve God or He'll bring great destruction on us. Is that true? You better believe it, it's true. You remember when Korah rebelled? And God opened the earth and swallowed them up? Just a few chapters back, you remember when Pharaoh said, I'm not going to serve God. Who is the Lord that I should serve Him? And God demolished His crops, His land, His river, His houses, their land, their cattle. He destroyed their families, and then He destroyed their army. You better believe that God is fearful and full of wrath. And man, you know, honest to God, man ought to be afraid. Man ought to be afraid of God. That God could in a moment shut our heart down and take our life from us. That God could in a moment bring us to a place in our life that we never imagined we'd be in. God is to be feared. But know this now. God's children don't follow Him because they're afraid of Him. There is a reverence. There's a reverential fear in the heart of His children. But there is not alarm or fright of God from His children. We've not received that spirit. In 1 John chapter 4, 1 John 4, verse number 9. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only Son, His only begotten Son, into the world, that we through Him might, be, might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. So here's the love of God. We didn't love Him. Didn't care nothing for Him. He was a joke. His Word was a joke. His church was a joke. His preachers, they were jokes. And we cared nothing for God nor anything that had to do with God. And when God would come by, in conviction, when the Word of God would come by, in correction, would be mad and upset. And he ought not preach on that or they ought not talk about that or that's just not the way it is. We didn't love God. But you know what God did? God loved us. Before we ever had any affection or feelings towards God, God loved us and sent His Son to be the appeasement of His wrath. Sent His Son to meet the standard of the law. Pay the penalty of our sins that we could be saved. So He says further on down in this same chapter, verse 16, We have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in Him. Verse 19. We love Him because He first loved us. So not that it was in us naturally. It was not. The opposite was. We were sinful, hateful towards God and rebellious. But God loved us, gave His Son for us, 
plucked us out of deception and darkness. And now, because of the love that He shed on us, we love Him. Inwardly, there's a love for God and them that are saved. And it's all a result of what God did. Now you take God out of the equation, where does that leave us? Any love for God when God's work is taken out? There is none. So why does the church love God? Because of what God did. And if God didn't do, we would have never loved Him. It's a result of God's work. So we've not received the spirit of bondage. We've received the spirit of adoption. We've received the spirit of love that God loved us, saved us. And that word adoption, my God, what a word. Look that up. Get you a dictionary when you get home and look that up and know that's what God did for you. To take one that is another's child into one's family and accept and treat as your own. God took children that were not His. That lie you hear today... We're all God's children. That is a lie. We got word of God to back it up. God told the Pharisees, you're of your father, the devil. No, we're not all God's children. I wasn't God's child. I was a child of the devil and a follower of wrath. But you know that God, by choice, chose. Now you think about adoption. You're going to bring one in. We've seen a couple cases here. You're bringing in great expense. You're bringing in something that's going to take up your time and effort. You're bringing in something that's going to take up place in your house. Something that's going to take away from you doing what you want. You are. You're, you're taking on all of these things. Why would somebody do that? Love. Law, what love? To take one in that's not your own and treat it as if it is. That's what God did. God took a bunch of children that belonged to the devil and He chose to bring them in and treat them as His own children. Not red-headed stepchildren, not servants, but His own children. And that's what the church is today. Children of God by adoption. So that love then that's generated from the work of God, this is what it produces in 1 John chapter 5, verse number 4. I'm sorry, verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. So you know what that Spirit does? That makes me want to follow after God. Because I've been regenerated and the love of God has been shed abroad in my hearts through the work of the Lord Jesus, I now have an inward desire and will to keep God's commandments and be pleasing to Him. But it, it's not because if I don't do this, God's going to whoop me and I'm scared slapped to death and that's why I've come to church. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to come this morning, but if I don't, God might do something to my boys. That ain't why we come to church. I don't come to church cowering in fear, wondering whether God's going to bring destruction or not if I don't do something right. No, I come because there's an inward love and desire from God, and it's not grievous to be at the house of God. Pile of people, it's grievous, it's gruesome, it's burdensome, it's weighty, it's troubling to follow after God. Do you know why that is? There's no love of God. Well, people just need to love more. That's bull. People need to be saved. The love, remember, the love is a result of the work of God. When they get saved, they'll love God because God will make them love Him. 
And then it won't be grievous to follow the Lord any longer. Who loves more? Him that's forgiven. So the work of God produces this love. And we've not received... Now that's what He says in Romans. Read it with me again, verse 15. Ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption. This is not worked up and it's not conjured. This is not earned. This is not brought out in me. Well, they's good in me. We just got to bring it out. It's not brought out of man. This is something received. Now, if you receive something, we live in a world today of ordering stuff, and it comes to your porch. Now, in order to receive something, it's going to have to come from somewhere. If there's nobody sending, then you're not going to receive, are you? So where did the Spirit come from? We received that. We received that from the hand of God. And not a spirit of fear, not a spirit of dread or of terror, but a spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Now, interesting here, and I'm not a scholar in the least bit, but Abba is a Chaldee-originated word. And Father here, that's Greek. So it's in two languages. Why that is, I I can't say for sure, other than we see it again in Mark. Mark chapter number 14 and verse number 36. This is the Lord Jesus. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto Thee, Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. So the Lord Jesus, God in the flesh, the only begotten Son of God, and I think we could agree that if God loved anybody, He loved His only begotten Son. Right? So when the Lord Jesus got down to pray, And now here he is in the garden. He knows where he's going. In just an hour or two, they're going to start beating on him. And he's going to wind up on a cross. And he's going to wind up giving his life. And the weight of all of that's on him. And the dread of what he's about to suffer. But as well, the weight of the sin of the whole world is settling on his shoulders. And he's bearing that. It's been said before, if you've ever been in a place that God has convicted you and let you feel the weight of your sin, Christ had that, and everybody else is on His back as well. So He's under this grievous load and He's calling out to His Father who He knows loves Him and He says, Abba, Father. That's the way that He addresses God the Father. Paul says that the church can address God the Father in the same way that the Lord Jesus addressed God the Father. Not as a servant coming and asking for some mercy, coming and asking for a handout, coming and asking for uh, something from the Master who's terrible and terrifying, but coming as the Lord Jesus came and bowing before the Father and addressing Him, Abba, Father, would you hear my prayer? Abba, Father. So, another place. In Luke chapter 11, here the Lord's teaching the disciples to pray. Verse number 2, And He said unto them, When you pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. To be able to pray and address God in the same manner that the Lord Jesus did. He is the Father of all them that believe. He's not someone that's terrible and out to destroy. But in Galatians chapter 4...
Verse number 4, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. That word there means placement as a son. God took us from where we were, placed us in His family as a son of God. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Back in Romans, the next verse, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now we're out of time. Uh, We'll look there next time at the heir of God, a joint heir of Christ. Um, But the Spirit itself beareth witness. That word means to bear record or to give evidence conjointly with. You've got two spirits there. You've got the Spirit of God and my Spirit. Now you've got a spirit as well. There can be a spirit of emotion. There can be a spirit of sorrow. A spirit of happiness. That everybody can have. Is it the sorrow and the tears? Is it the happiness and the joy and the bubbliness? Is it laughing? Shouting? Is any of that what we look for? No, it's that the Spirit of God testifies jointly with. It's not that you have to cry in order for it to be of the Spirit. It's not that you have to shout in order for it to be of the Spirit. It's not that you have to sing certain words in order for it to be of the Spirit. It's that whatever that it is that comes from the church, the Spirit of God bears evidence with that. That God testifies with what I'm saying that I am the children of God. We'll pick up there next time. All hearts and minds clear.